So we talked last week, and I want to finish up with this about Noah. We talked about Noah. A lot of you know the story if you, if you weren't here. And so God uh, was disappointed in the creation of the earth and what he had made. And man had become so evil that he was disgusted with it, and he, he regretted it. And so he decided to do a do-over, and he was going to wipe the whole earth. And he chose one who was righteous among the land and his family, so eight of them total, and he would save those and start over again, and it was a new Adam. He would start over with a new Adam, like back in the garden. And so he did that. But the ark had to rest somewhere. We didn't get to that last week. And so the ark rested in what most of you know is Mount Ararat. It's in Turkey. And, just, and it rested there, finally came. So the waters receded after a long period of time, and then finally... Life came forth out of the water. Now in the scripture, a lot of you know that water is symbolic of death. That's baptism. You're going in, dying to the old self, and then coming to life. The whole creation order of the world is the, the world is underwater, and it's in chaos and death, and, and then the waters recede, and the life blooms up from the water. And so the ark now has rise the, from above the water, and it's life. And then the scripture does this unusual thing. It just throws a calendar date in there. And it does that through scripture. Just not a lot, but on occasion. It just gives you a date. And you got to ask, like, why did God want us to know the date? And so we read it in Genesis 8, 4 that, about the ark resting. And then it says, then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month on the mountain's of Ararat, and we're using a Jewish calendar. Jewish calendars are two different calendars, but the, the date that this coincides with is the 17th of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. Like, okay, big deal. You know what? You know, December 3rd, December 17th, whatever. Who cares? Um, but there's purpose in all of it. And so what we're seeing from the very start of the study when we started in Esther, that God connects everything, that these aren't just some 40 random books in the Bible that just got all thrown in there saying, you know, this is good, we'll put this in. Oh, that sounds good, we'll put that in. No, that, that there's a story from the very beginning just so we can connect a few of these. There's a Jewish holiday called the, that God ordained called the Feast of First Fruits. It's on the, always on the Sunday following Passover, which just so happens to be the 17th day of Nisan. It's the day of new life celebration, that life would come from the grounds. Of course, this hadn't occurred yet in Noah's day. That festival wasn't celebrated. And then, of course, we studied Esther and Mordecai, and we know that there was a, a date in there as well, and there's the date of the emancipation or the freedom when there was a death sentence put on all the Jewish people and then through a turn of the tables, instead of the, the Jewish people being executed, Haman was executed, and the decree went out that the Jews could be saved. It just so happened to be on the 17th day of Nisan. And then, of course, we know that Jesus rose from the dead, and he died on Passover. And Oh, the Sunday after, what day is that? the Feast of First Fruits of Life Coming from the Ground, it just so happened to be on the 17th day of Nisan. So we can see from the very beginning in God's do-over that he put a calendar 
on a date and that he's going to connect it all the way to the very end. I believe that at the very end. This is just my opinion. I've shared this before. You don't have to believe it. I believe when we see God come back, somehow it's going to be on a date that he had already pre-described. We don't know the day or the hour, but somehow it's all going to connect at the very end in one of those Jewish feasts. It will. So we said that Noah was the, the new Adam. The old Adam failed. And, uh, <laughs> and the new Adam, Noah, he failed too. Because you, there's never going to be a man that's going to get this right. All of this disappointment was the point to one who was never going to disappoint. Now remember that, that God had made a promise back in the garden that he said that one day there will be a seed, an offspring, a descendant, that is going to come forth, and that descendant is going to crush that serpent, Satan, crush his head. He'll be bruised in the process, but it'll be for the deliverance of the people. And so that seed has to be protected. It's a real, an offspring is going to come forth. And so remember, just going back last week, that Noah had three sons. All of you in here are descendant of one of these three boys. All of you. You're a, you're a Shemite, you're a Hamite, or you're a Japhethite. You're one of those three. You're Jewish. I can tell you now you're a Shemite or a Semite. And depending on where you live, you can know what tribe that you, you come from. And so the seed, God said, was going to come through the tribe of Shem, through a Semite. And like he did with Adam, God instructed Noah to go and be fruitful and multiply. It's the same story. Go and be fruitful and multiply in the, all the earth. Noah disappointed. Uh, Noah, uh, his trade was that he liked to grow grapes and he made wine. Some of you will rejoice in that. Don't rejoice too much. Well, uh, I just, you know, the Bible is very forthright and honest. It doesn't gloss over the facts. And so the fact is... Uh, uh, he got hammered. He did. He got hammered. And I don't know what all happened in there. We only know. The Bible doesn't give us specifics. I don't think we want to know, and I'm glad it wasn't written down. But he ended up naked in his tent. And his younger boy, Ham, found him and I guess kind of ridiculed and laughed at him. I don't know what that shame was. But just like Adam, Noah ended up naked and ashamed another failure and God cursed the whatever offspring through Ham would come and he put a curse on the people and so the people even though God did a start uh, a do-over uh, they were still a disappointment and they went along their own way and they were evil and God had said that I, I want to get a people of my own who will come out from these pagan people and be mine and be my representatives and one of those will carry the seed or the offspring. But this group of people got together and they all spoke the same language and they came and they, they wanted to make a name for themselves. And in order to make a name for themselves, you know what we should do? We should build a tower. Just like this great monstrosity. It, it'll, everyone will know who we are. And we'll have it reach into the celestials. And they said that. You can see that in Babylonian writing talking about the tower. To it, that, it, that it would reach up into the clouds and reach to the gods, small g. It would be a center of worship and a center of our pride. 
Oh, isn't this great what we have done? We can do anything as a people. We've made a name for ourselves. And God has a trouble with people making a name for themselves because the reality is, whether you like it or not, at the very end, he says, the only one that's going to make a name for himself is him. He's the only name, the name above all names. And when he comes, you will know that it's his name that matters, his authority and everything that that name represents. Well, the people are in direct conflict of God, and so God, as you know the story, and many people argue this and say it's allegorical, it's not true. He's, he changed the languages, and he scattered all the people. I believe that's literally exactly what happened. And, and the reason I, I'm connecting that to something I want to tell you is remember, all this connects. And so what happened in Acts chapter 2? God sends the Holy Spirit. The new church is born. Jesus is resurrected, right? He said, wait here. He sends the Holy Spirit. And all the people from all the nations that come in for the holiday, and they all spoke different languages, and they were different ethnicities, and they were all around. And what did God do? He gave them a gift, and they all spoke a language they could understand. And so he undid the curse of Babel, and in one moment, he created a nation where everybody would understand and speak the same language. It was a harbinger to what would take place one day when you and I are for eternity in heaven, where we will be one people under one God with one method of communication. And so now we, in this story of this a pagan people gone wrong, God is going to call out and change some things. He's got to move the seed forward. He needs the offspring protected. And so a person you maybe heard of, and maybe not by this name, his name is Abram. Abram is in a pagan land somewhere in the corner of Mesopotamia. It's a pagan land. They worship false gods, and they do horrible, despicable things. And in there is this man and his wife, Sarai. His name, Abram, means exalted father. God doesn't change his name to Abraham just yet. They're old, and, a, and she's in living in disgrace because a, the, the thing then culturally was to have children, and, and it was the wife was to have children, and especially sons, to carry on the legacy of the family and perpetuate the family, and they were, she was barren. And I just want to go, if you've got your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 12. This is a calling out. And the Lord said to Abram or Abram, he said, Go from, from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. God calls him out from his pagan land. He says, I, I want you to come for it. I, we don't know how God talked to him. He didn't say a burning bush. He didn't say it was a vision or dream. We just know that somewhere in all this paganism, God called him out the same way he did for you. One day about your business and your pagan land, living life the way you were, you were rudely interrupted. And somebody somewhere told you about a God. And your heart was convicted. And you came out of the land that you lived in. This is the model. This is the harbinger to that. So he calls him out and he says three things. You're going to leave your country, you're going to leave your people, and you're going to leave your father's household. All of those are big deal. Imagine someone coming to you in a dream. I need you to get up, take all your possessions and your, fam and your wife or your husband and leave. And you would say, well, okay. Um, yeah, I want to do that. Um, where are we going? 
silence. Uh, so what, how, how am I going to get there? Like, do you have a ticket for me? Silence. He just said, no, come on out and go. No. Yeah, but I'm going to need a little bit of information because I'm a little uncomfortable at this moment. Isn't that where we would be, honestly? Yeah. He didn't give him a game plan, but God gave him a promise. He called him out, and he gave him a promise. Now, the question here is, will Abram believe the promise of God? And he says this in 12, 2 through 3 in Genesis. He said, I will make you a great nation, I mean a great people, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curse you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now, unspoken, there is a condition to the promise. What's the condition to the promise? Prior verse, verse 1. You got to leave. You're not going to get the blessing if you don't leave. You got to go out from your father's household and leave your country and leave your people. And if you don't, you don't get the blessing. That's a condition. So he's going to make him a great nation, give him a great name. He's going to enjoy the blessing of God. He said, whoever blesses you, in other words, Abram, whoever blesses you and your God that you follow, they bless me and I will bless them. And whoever curses you and the God that you serve, I will curse them. One offspring in particular is important in all of this. Just keep that in mind that there will be a seed to this house. God is doing this for a purpose. He's calling him out because within Abraham being a, a Shemite, Abraham being a Shemite, that he is going to perpetuate in one day an offspring will come from him who will be the ultimate king and rescue the whole world and will be the Adam that was supposed to be from the very beginning. So it says that in the rest of this in Genesis 12 verses 4 through 5 he said so Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him that's his nephew Abram or Abram was 75 years old when he set out for Haran he took his wife Sarai his nephew Lot all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. So they took their Egyptian servants, and they obviously weren't poor, uh, took them out, took their possessions. And I remember when I got married and first, my, my possessions consisted of a laundry basket and a lamp. That was it. I had a feeling he had a little bit more than that. He was married. He's accumulated stuff. You know what I mean? This was a pure act of obedience. He knows, really, we don't know that he knows anything of Yahweh except that God spoke to him and he knew it was God. Jesus gives example of what it means to respond to God's call. We need to listen to this. The real true, Jesus is, Matthew records this in chapter 8 in Matthew, verses 19 and 20. Somebody goes to him and goes to Jesus and says, then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I, I will follow you wherever you go. I, you've called me out. I'm going to follow you. And listen to what he says, because this is what Abraham had to do. Jesus said, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. In other words, <laughs> I can't tell you where you're going. I can't tell you how you're going to get there. I'm just telling you, you need to follow me. If you haven't left something behind, 
you truly haven't left. Whenever you leave and God calls you out, there's always something you're leaving behind. Just think about that for a moment in your life. God had called you out. If you haven't left anything behind, if something hasn't been left, you haven't left. Now, Abram wasn't perfect. God didn't pick him because he's perfect. God didn't even save him like he did Noah, and there was one righteous in all the land, and Abram had an imperfect faith. It needed to be sharpened like ours does. And so there's a great famine in the land. He and Sarai got to leave the la- to Egypt where they could get some food and to hang out there for a little bit. And they go, and, but Sarai, his wife, is really beautiful. And, and so he, he gets this scheme and he says, listen, uh, Sarai, listen to me. Um, when we get to Egypt... I'm going to introduce you as my sister. Because see, the custom at the time is if you see, a, if the king, the wicked king should see a beautiful woman that he wants and she's married, this, the easiest thing for him to do is just kill the king. <laughs> you with me, come. That's it. But the custom also said that if, if you have a brother, for the sake of the wife, in other words, you don't want her angry and upset with you the rest of your life, you, you bless the brother, and you give him all kinds of things, and so the brother will be taken care of. So Abram here, being the great man of faith that he is, doesn't care what happens to his wife, that she may be taken up and put in a harem, but he's protecting his own self. Now, be, what happens? So they get to Egypt, and of course, Pharaoh's men look at her and says, oh, she is a looker. And just as Abram suspected, because he didn't have enough faith to tell the truth that God would protect, he, he, he went back on the blessing. He, he didn't think back on the blessing, that God had promised him something, and that God wasn't capable of making that happen. So instead, he had to take matters in his own hands, and he had to do a little lie, just a little bit, because she really was his half-sister. You know, it wasn't a total lie, you know what I mean? Just one of those, like, little gray area lies. But the real underneath that lie was a lack of faith and confidence in God. Well, Pharaoh takes for himself Sarai and puts her in his harem. And, and in exchange, of course, he, he blesses and protects Abram, who he thinks is the brother. But God has to do an intervention. Why does God do an intervention? God has to come in and stop this thing before they, there's intimacy. And so what he does as God inflicts diseases on Pharaoh's household and Pharaoh. Terrible disease. So badly so that Pharaoh had no doubt in his mind who this was coming from. And that was something was wrong. And he found out that Sarai was actually Abram's wife. God interceded because the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 was going to need protected, and she was the key to the seed, and we can't have anything to disrupt that. There is no way that he would permit that to stop. I'll tell you, when God wants something, there's nothing you're going to do to stop it, nothing in this world, no power in this world that is stronger and greater than what God can do. He will have his way in the end. That lets me sleep a lot of nights. When I'm worried about all the chaos in the world and darkness comes in like a flood, I can sit there and look and say, God! You will always have the last word. And if we know the word, we know what the last word is. I want you to observe 
here. So Pharaoh, it says in verse 20, then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. In other words, we know it. Psh, what have you done to me? And he gave them the, all the stuff. This is just a harbinger, a picture of what's ahead in Exodus when Moses comes some weeks ahead here for us. Abram and Lot part ways because there's an argument. There's overcrowding. They'd become very rich. They had gotten given cattle. They had many possessions. And together, they're, they're just getting in arguments. Their herdsmen are fighting with each other. And Abram goes to Lot, his nephew, and he says, ah, we just need to part ways. But I want you to see something here. It's, so, it's such an important lesson because Abram, even though he's showing that he's weak in faith, is getting stronger. He looked at, I want you to listen to this in Genesis 39. He said, is not the whole land before you, Lot? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. What's he saying? He said, listen, I don't care what you pick. It doesn't matter. Because God has given me a promise. So you choose wherever you want. Now, he's the younger nephew. By patriarchy standards, Abram has full authority and can choose whatever land he wants. They're all looking at all the land and seeing what's prime property. So it's an important step of faith that he takes here. And I'll tell you that, that's an important step of faith for us. Sometimes in making choices, you don't make choices just for yourself that you've got to ask the question, what does God want me to do? We need to believe his promise that we've got a future hope and a present help. I know a guy who, he, in his workplace, he made a, a commitment before the Lord. And he, he said, this is my resolve. He, he, he believed that, that God had clearly told him that he would provide for all of his needs. And so he wanted a demonstration of faith to prove that out. And so he made a covenant with God that he would never ask for a raise. Never a promotion, never a raise. He made that I'm not saying you need to do that. I'm just saying this is what this guy did. And he, uh, and so you know in the workforce, those of you in the workforce, you know, you always ask for the proverbial review, which is equivalent to a raise and all that. So he, he didn't engage in any of that. He never asked for a review, never asked for a raise. And his own confession is that he always got raises beyond what he expected. He got bonuses by surprise. And all of it was God coming to him and saying, because you trusted me, I took care of you. It's just a lesson in a practical way. And so Lot, who did, what did he choose? So Lot looked over all the land. This is a contrast between a person of faith and a person of personal gain. So Lot for him. Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. In other words, he chose the most fertile land near the water. It was beautiful, lush trees, great agriculture. It will make him richer. He's got all the land for his flock. He chose to pitch his tent near an evil place. It didn't matter to him because, you know, at this place it would be a good place to do business and maybe there was a good school system or it was convenient shopping and really cool people that he wanted to be around. No different than today, guys. And so it says in verse 12, Genesis 13, Abram or Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Take note of near. He was, a, he was righteous enough and knew Yahweh enough not to live in the evil. The city of Sodom was an evil place. We know that because Scripture tells us. Listen to it. 
The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and to the south. And by the way, let me skip the verse, verse 13. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. He said, this town, and those of you have probably heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, an object of God's wrath. And so this is where he chose to pitch his tent near Eventually, Lot would end up inside the city gates. He started out righteously on the outside. He just wanted to be close, and eventually, he was evil brought him in. Lot had a sense of godliness. Abram and Sarai remained tent dwellers, living in the land of the Canaanites, which is the, one, the land that God had cursed through Noah, through his son Ham. And the Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and to the south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring, offspring, underline, offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Abraham is given a promise and told to believe something that is physically impossible. The guy is 75 plus years old and his wife just 10 years younger than he. This isn't going to happen. And he's supposed to believe this? I can't see it. Okay, God, you do it. And then building his character, God takes him into Abram, as they go on, and he's holding on to this fact that I, I'm going to have offspring. I don't have anybody. And then there are these kings in the land. They ran different parts of the land, and then there were five kings that formed a coalition, and then four kings that formed another coalition, and the four kings attacked the five kings, and they overtook them and destroyed them. And one of the kings of the five was the king of Sodom, the evil city. And they had gone in there and looted the city of Sodom and taken out who? Lot, his nephew, and his family. And carried them off like servants and slaves. Well, Abram at this point is remembering the promise. Now, he's only got 318 trained warriors in this whole bunch of people he's got. He's got 318 against, the, against a team of four kingdoms. How many people do you think four kingdoms have? 300 each, 1,200, he's outnumbered, he's outgunned, he doesn't stand a chance of winning. But God gave him a promise. Would he decide to act in faith and go rescue his son and take his 318 up against impossible odds? Or will he cower back? Is God true or isn't he? Will he have offspring or won't he? Will he own all the land, east and west, north and south, or will he not? He has to make a decision. Well, he went and fought, and I know you probably know the story, but his 318 trained warriors beat a kingdom. Actually, they beat four kingdoms. It was impressive. Now, at that time, when you do a, I don't know if you say this in church, you gave them a real butt kicking. Yeah. I guess you can because I just did it. Um, this is a great act of courage and faith, this battle. And it just reminds me of the verse was said in the Psalms and elsewhere and quoted elsewhere, the battle belongs to the Lord. 
Can you believe that? Like the battle is God's. That's what Abram knew. Abram knew that this was God's battle. It wasn't his. And, and even though he, the odds were impossible, he knew that him, 318 plus God, was greater than the thousands that could come against him. But you know what? When you, when you, when you win at such a victory like that, you can get a little uh, sure of yourself, can't you? Like, you know, I'm feeling pretty good right now. We, we just whooped four kingdoms. And you could, you could strut your stuff. You start walking a little different, you know what I mean? You do. You do. You're just good. Your confidence level is way up. You start in your brain, your little crazy brain goes into gear and it says, you know what? We're pretty good. That was some good training we gave those soldiers. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to do another one of these. You get real sure of yourself, but just in case God sent somebody to humble him and to remind him who it is that won the battle. And it's this character out of nowhere. We, we don't know. He doesn't show up again until much later through David. It, it's just out of nowhere, some priest that, that God had ordained in a day when there really weren't any priests, some, some king from this place called Salem, or Salem, Salem meaning peace, which we found a shortened word for Jerusalem, that this, this king who who's, wasn't appointed a priest except by God comes to him out of nowhere, and he greets him, and he gives him a blessing, and he gives him a reminder. In Genesis 14, 19 and 20, he says this. He said, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram, the God, by the God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Who delivered the enemy? That's what he said. Like, hey, just in case you got a little swagger going on, I just want you to know, don't be doing a dance in the end zone. Don't be dancing in the end zone. Because God did this. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is before tithing was officially instituted into the law. He just said, oh, I know who you are. I'm giving it to you. And this, this Melchizedek, Melchizedek is pronounced in Hebrew, Melchizedek. He came to him and he, he brought bread in generosity and he brought wine in, in a generous appeal. And what is that a, a picture of for the future? This priest says... Abram, God has given you new life. He has given you life, and he's given you all the land and all the possessions, and you have conquered your enemy because of God. And, and he brings the cup, and he brings the bread. And then later on, we see that the fulfillment of that, the true king and the true high priest comes one day bringing bread and bringing wine. And he says, you'll see that soon you're going to have life, and so do this in remembrance of me. It's the picture that we get. It's the harbinger for the what's to come. Abram is reminded of who won the battle. He has no room for pride. Brethren, we need to do battle ourselves against those strongholds we sang about and our places where we need to do battle internally, spiritually. You know where they're at. You know where your battle is. Most of you do. And we do battle because the only way for God to win a battle is for you to, to, to do something by faith. That means you're walking away from something, you're giving up something, you're doing something. There, there's the, the blessing comes by an action. 
an action that is faith, not works. You're not earning his favor. You're doing something so he can pour a blessing on you. It's a principle. By the way, this king's name, Lechazedek, his, his name is translated king of righteousness. And his name is intentional because one day there would be a king who would be the only one perfectly ever righteous on the land. And he would come one day and said, I am the bread of life. This is the blood of the new covenant. Well, the visit from the king of righteousness is followed by another king, and this is not coincidental in chronology. So he gets a visit from this kingly priest, whoever he is. It could have been God himself. He, he gets a visit, and guess what happens next? He gets another visit from another king, because right now, guess what all the kingdoms are saying? Because he did such a whooping, this Abram guy, we got to take him seriously. Look at him. He's one of us. He's a king. They recognized him, and all of a sudden, he got a great name, just as God promised. He got a fulfillment right there. His name was great because he had whooped them. And so the king of Sodom, who is the king of evil, his name means evil, Belial, he comes to him, and he says, hey, Abram, listen, um, thank you. Thank you so much for what you did and rescuing my people and, and me from these guys. I want, you to, I want you to give me back my people, but take all the spoils. Take everything is yours. It's all yours. All this stuff, you can have it. We're going to make you richer. Like any normal guy is going like, Peh. We earned it, you know? I'll give my guys, I'll split, I'll take 50% for myself and I'll split the other 50% among the 318 guys. A true employee profit share, right? He's gonna do. Eh, he doesn't say that, not at all. This is, this is the part of faith coming into action. Imagine the temptation, gold and silver, coins given to you, things of such great value and you, say this like Abram did. Abram said, keep the goods for yourself. He said this, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. In other words, Abram protected God's glory at all costs. Brethren, this is a message for you and me. We are to protect God's glory at all costs. That's acts of faith, things that we leave, things that we invest in that are, are motivated by a heart for him, that we protect his glory. Abram asked God, and after time is ticking and his wife's time clock is way past due, and saying, you know, what am I going to do about an offspring? You know, where's the offspring you promised me? Is it Eleazar, my, my servant? It must be him. He's my trusted servant. That was common custom at the time, by the way. Just take your servant, and, and then you'll make him an heir to the kingdom. That's the next best thing. Adopt him. And uh, God took Abram aside in the dark of night. Took him outside. Abram, he said, Look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Um, 
He's, God still doesn't answer the other question, does he? How are you going to do it? When is this going to happen? He doesn't answer the question. He just says, this is what's going to happen. Will you trust me or not? I believe God, I hear him saying similar to me. I, times I hear him, Greg, just come with me and look up at the sky. And up there beyond the stars in the magnificence of the solar system or billions of other solar systems, and beyond that, I live. And one day, look up there, you will have a home in your celestial home one day. And I have to believe that because I've never seen it. Will I have my confidence in that hope? Will you have your confidence in a hope like that? It seems crazy, but it's not. It's real. He's real. The promise is real. The hope is real. He takes you out. He says, look up there. Beyond that is a, is a third heaven. And it will be home for you forever. And this is only a short little journey down on this earth. Well, like us, Abram had a response. We're going to have to make a response. This is what's his response in Genesis 15, 6. This is an amazing response to what God did to him in looking at all this. Abram believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed God. Yeah, I believe it. You didn't tell me how to do it, but I believe you. Kind of. See, God didn't give him the method, so you know what? Sarai is being probably at the village. She's ashamed. She hasn't had any children. Probably the other village girls are looking at her and go, eh, she doesn't have any kids. She's such a disappointment to her husband. God isn't with them. That kind of stuff going on. And she goes to Abram and she says, hey, honey, you have a good day out there today? I got to talk to you. You know, whenever your wife says, I got to talk to you, it's, you know, every man fastens his seatbelt. Every man. Like, okay. <laughs> Can I sit down first? Um, I got to talk to you. And she says, you know what? I was thinking, you know, it's custom that if you can't have a child, you take your maidservant and you have a child with her and then you adopt the, that child. So we're going to do that. And uh, looks at Abram says, take this this maidservant of mine, Hagar, and she'll be your wife, and then you'll have a kid. What does he, he agreed to that, by the way. I mean, what is that saying about his faith? He's saying, listen, I, I, I believe God. I do. But uh, I don't trust his timing, and I don't trust his method. So I'm going to use my method. And she conceives, and she has a child, and as her waist gets bigger, she's like a little resentful, the Bible says, of, of of, of Sarai and you know maybe she's a little haughty too I'm carrying the king's son and you couldn't and that didn't make for a very good home life for Abram or anybody who was around Sarai and so Sarai ran away she's a pagan woman by the way she goes out and God finds her I love this story of grace we'll end it here and we'll pick up next week it's just a, such a great story of grace that that God came to her and her tears she's a pagan woman mind you but she's carrying the son of Abram and he looks at her and he's and he's and he calls her by her name I don't know anywhere else in the Bible where someone like that is called by name Hagar I, I hear your cry I hear you I see you you're gonna have a son and you will name him Ishmael 
which means God sees. Go back to your maidservant, Sarai. And she goes back to her maidservant. And I want you to imagine this for a moment, the conviction and the humiliation of this decision that they have made. God has told them what was going to be. He didn't say it was going to be through Hagar. He had a method of his own, but they couldn't wait. So they took matters in their own hands. It's kind of like we've all done it, right? Yeah, Lord, bless me with a beautiful home. And so you get in debt you can never pay off, you know. You, you, you go make stuff happen. You, you, you're tired of being alone. So you, you just, you know, get a relationship that you know is bad. All the flags are there, but, you know, you got to fix this yourself. You're not going to wait for God anymore. And they take matters in their own hands. And, of course, Sarai, this is, a lot of you guys will relate to this. Women, don't hate me on this. It's just a man thing right now. So it was Sarai that went and said, take this maidservant over here and have the baby. And so Sarai turned to her husband and said, why did you do this? Blame the man every time. Guys, ultimately, this is your responsibility. She was right. It was his fault. It was him that God came and talked to. It was Adam's fault in the garden, not Eve's. Men, that is your responsibility. If you've got a household, I'm telling you. That's just, that's extra. I'm going to close it. Just some application here. When they went, the humiliation, and they went to, Hagar went to Sarai and said, God gave me a name for, the, for it's a boy. Yay, a boy. And his name is Ishmael. God sees can you imagine what went through Abram's mind? Like, oh, yeah, God can see. God sees that she's not pregnant yet. God, God sees the motivation of our hearts, that we took matters in our own. God, God sees. It, it, was a, it was a slam against them. Brethren, God has called you out. He has called you to leave the land that you were in and to leave it behind. When Jesus, the original Greek as it was written, used the words to talk about what a church is. Our modern translators have messed that up horribly. We, we took the word to make it a piece of property, a kirsch from German. That, that you go to a kirsch, God will build his kirsch. No, he didn't. God builds an ecclesia, a people called out by God. That we have been called out. When Jesus said, I'll build my church, he said, I'm going to build out a group of people that are called by God. They're not just called by God. They're called out by God. You've got to leave somewhere to go. And a lot of us haven't left. You've got to leave something behind if you want to get the blessing. Second is you've got to resist the temptation to make something happen on your own and then blame it on God. You do it and you call it God. It's not God. Sometimes, you know, faith is expressed in a couple different ways. You don't, you don't go out and take matters in your own hand and go get an unequally yoked partner or a debt on something that God hasn't provided for or build somehow your own heaven on earth because you can't wait for his heaven. You've got to have it now. So most of us have that heart. But faith is expressed in two ways, acts of obedience and waiting. Faith is expressed in two ways, acts of obedience, doing something Faith without works is dead, James writes. 
you have to do something to prove out your faith. There's an obedience to it. And then a lot of, most of faith is in waiting on God to do. That he will do it. I'll do my part. He does his part. Waiting on him to do. If you don't have areas of obedience motivated solely by faith, you are not operating in faith. I've had many years like that, not days, of not operating out. And with all this, I want to bring back the picture of the high priest, of Chazadek, who came, and that one day he pointed to one who would come through the offspring that God protected and did an intervention for. That one day he would come, that he would come back and he would give his life for you, that he so loved you and so wanted a single nation that in a celestial home, it says in Hebrews that, that Abraham's faith was built on the fact that he was going to have a home one day, a celestial one, not one on earth. He always lived in tents. He didn't have a permanent house because it was never about this earth. His hope was, with, was to come. He looked beyond the stars and the solar system and believed that there was more later. And so that is the truth for us, that there is more later. And Jesus made that very clear when he, the final king and the great high priest of all, would come and he would bring the bread and he would bring the wine. And he would say, I want you to do something. Would you all get your communion elements ready, please? Jesus was at that final supper, final Passover meal. Like the only thing he had on his mind was the joy set before him. You're the joy. That one day he would have a nation of called out people all to himself. And that the ultimate price he would pay was that he would take the wrath of God for you. Like he would take God's wrath for us, for me. And that he would be our substitute. He would stand in for us in the electric chair. He would take the shock. He would endure the pain and the agony of being separated from his father. So ultimately, he said, I want a family and I want a nation of my own. One single nation. He's going to fulfill the promise that God gave to Abraham. Through Abraham, he said, I will give you many nations and bless them through you. And so you are the fulfillment of the prophecy of God to Abraham, to Abraham. And so Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Take this and eat this in remembrance of me.
took the cup. There was no sacrifices any good without spilled blood. For years, it was just represented by animal sacrificial system. Those are just representations, emblematic of what would come. Finally, the perfect lamb would come. John looked at Jesus and said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so the lamb would give up his own, and before that, he was just letting them know, this is, this is a new covenant. Gave one to Abraham. I would bless through all nations, and now I'm giving you a new covenant. I will bless you by grace through faith alone. That You can't earn this. You're unearned. Your relationship with God is unearned. He called you out, just like he did Abram from a pagan nation. He has called you out, and he's asked you to leave it. In exchange for that, he has given his blood for it and taken the wrath of God on himself. This is the blood of the new covenant. Take away the sins of the world. Let's drink it. Dear God, we confess that you are amazing. And Lord, we, we ask, to, as you've given us these historical accounts of your character, that, Lord, that we would be a faithful people. Would you help us to be people that lived ecclesiac, called out people that would leave behind and go into a new land without needing all the answers, without needing to know exactly the what, if, and how. Lord, we're grateful to you for what you've done, and we give you honor and all the glory. Amen. You love